for the past three weeks, we've really been spending a lot of time looking at Scripture closely for the biblical uh, standard for the role of elder or pastor. So that's where we are uh, right now as a church. Uh, so you're jumping in with us right in the middle of it. We've, we've concluded this uh, three sections on elders, and now we're moving this morning to the role of deacons. Uh, so it's a good time to be here. Uh, as a result of our the previous three weeks, I think a lot of good has come from that. Am I starting to do that thing again? I'm good. Uh, I think a lot of good has come from that. Uh, I know I've spent some time talking uh, with a number of you, uh, following Blake's two sermons and then following my sermon last week. Uh, I'll go ahead and get this out the way because I started doing this last week. Um, I heard very good feedback last week. Uh, and one of the things that I've been challenged, uh, a pastor that I highly uh, admire uh, and look to for a good model of uh, pastoral ministry, he told a story one time how he, he was in seminary and he really looked up to the guy that was preaching in their chapel service that morning. And after the service, he wanted to go up to him to encourage him. And I can tell you, as one who spends time in preparation over the Word to deliver the Word to the church, that's good. It is a good thing to get encouragement and much needed. So he went to him and wanted to encourage him. And the guy's response kind of took him aback a little bit because the guy's response was, oh yeah? It wasn't thank you. It wasn't I appreciate you spending the time taking, going out of your way to come tell me that I did a good job. And as one who's been there before, I can understand the hesitancy to even say that. Because, you know, part of you is like, okay, I, I want to express gratitude for the fact that they are trying to encourage me. But at the same time, I don't want them to think that I'm doing this for their, like, just for their appreciation. I mean, our service is to the Lord first, not to individuals. So I, I want to make sure you understand, like, I'm not doing this to please you. So how do you go about it? Well, this guy's response was, oh, yeah, well, what are you going to do about it? You tell me I do a good job. Well, that is still to be determined. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to apply that word? So I started doing that a little bit last week. So if you, if you come up to me later and tell me, hey, you did a good job, just expect it. I'm going to ask you. I asked a few last week, like, how are you going to apply this? Where, where, what ways are you looking to, uh, to change and if you don't come tell me I did, did a good job, I guess I didn't. So I'll just take that. Uh, but I think a lot of good has come from it. I think we have a clear understanding. I think we cleared up some things in Scripture for what we should be looking for in our pastors and our elders. I think we have a greater appreciation now for the standard of leadership that God has called us to follow and called us to hold accountable and all that's good, but I fear this morning we may have to overcome some bad that may have come from that because this morning we're going into the role of deacons. And I fear that now that we have a greater appreciation for the pastor, the elder, the overseer, we may have a diminished view of the deacon. And I think as we go through Scripture, I think you're going to see that that would be a misconception. Some of us have grown up in a church model where there is a pastor or there's a multiple uh, pastorhood. You have some, maybe a senior pastor with some associate pastors. And their responsibility is for spiritual care. They teach. Uh, they counsel. 
But the deacons are the ones who probably ran the church. They were the ones that provided oversight, direction. I know my experiences as I grew up in the church, the deacons were a bunch of old guys who intimidated me into behaving in the worship service on Sunday mornings. Like, that's what I think of. It's funny because... I was a military kid. My dad was in the Army, and we moved around a lot. But there was like a four-year span where we were actually living in Rose Pond, and we went to a church in DeRitter, and, and Katie and I were talking recently and found out that we actually grew up in the same church at that time in our lives. And there's a, there was a deacon there that fits the stereotype that I have in mind. Big, burly, bearded, balding, <laughs> Sat in like jeez, sat in like the first or second row, snored during the sermons. That's for some of us. That's the view we have of the guys who were deacons, the people who serve as deacons in the church. Some of us are familiar with the model where deacons run the church. Others are familiar with deacons who don't really garner much respect, much honor. The deacons were more of a social status in some of our churches. A lifetime appointment to being a member of the club with hardly any accountability or expectations. And that's unfortunate. Because as we look in Scripture this morning in 1 Timothy 3, we're going to see that the, the role of the deacon is so important. It is essential for the church. And I will say it is right next to the, the role of pastor. Not any less. It is a high calling. And, and my prayer this morning is that God would give us an increased awareness of the magnitude of that role in the church. And that he would grant us proper perspective for the identity and the qualifications one must meet in order to serve in this role. Now, before we go into our text, because some of us have different views of what a deacon is, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. And I don't want you to tune me out just because we're not going through the passage like we normally do. This is important for us. We need to understand what role the deacon plays, who the deacon is. This is a pivotal moment in the history of our church. Currently, we don't have anybody officially in the office of deacon. We've, we've asked you as a church to consider Troy Case, who just so happens to be big and burly and bearded. <laughs> but it's important for us as we, as we move in this direction to, to compare what Scripture says to the life of Troy Case and to the life of others in our church that we would consider to be deacons. The Greek word that is transliterated into deacon. Now that word, when I say transliterated, it's different from translate. A lot of times when you're looking in Scripture and you see the English that we have now, the words have been taken from the Greek in the New Testament. They've been taken from the Greek and they've been translated into a word that means the same thing. We see the word deacon in scripture that is a transliteration it is not translated what they did was they took the Greek letters 
and they converted them to English letters. And it's a new word. The word did not exist in the English language. So it's a made-up word. That's not a bad thing. The reason that the editors have done that is because when we see specifically the role of deacon in the church, they wanted to differentiate between servants. That's what the word means. The word is diakonos, literally meaning servant, minister, or waiter. There is no Greek word for deacon. I say that, I want you to know the meaning of that word because that is the heart and soul of that role in the church. It is the servant. Now as Christians, we are all called to be diakonos. We are all called to be servants. There are many occurrences in which this word is used or a version of it in the New Testament in the broad sense of being servants. And I've got a couple here that I want to read to you this morning. Trent read the first one. And I love this because I think this is going to help us understand that as a church, you know, kind of like last week, I said, hey, we're, we're talking about elders. You have been asked to examine me uh, to see, examine my life to see if I fit those qualifications. And if I don't, don't let me serve in that role. It's the same thing this morning. I said, you got to examine yourselves too. If you leave here this morning and all you're thinking about is Troy Case, then we've missed it. Because we've got to examine these. We've all been called to the servanthood. Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? I don't know if he said it that way. Sorry. What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, Diakonos. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, another form of the word diakonos, but to serve, same word, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Obviously, Jesus wasn't a deacon. Jesus did not come to be a deacon for the church. But he did come to be a servant, not to be served, but to serve. In John 12, 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, same word, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. As the church, we have been called to follow the model, the example of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in servanthood. Jesus says that among His people, the great ones are the servants. And in all these word occurrences, that word diakonos is used. So in that sense, we are all in the diakonia. We are all in the deaconate. We are all servants. In another sense, there are some among us in the body of Christ who have been given a supernatural gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit in the area of service. And as we've seen in our study in Ephesians, and for those of you who have come and gone through our linked class, our gathering for new members, you've seen that the purpose of these gifts, specifically this morning, the gift of service, is to build up the body. In Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, Paul, after finishing his discourse on the gospel, starts moving towards application. And here he talks about the gifts in the body. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. And then he goes on to list others, teaching, exhortation, uh, leading, acts of mercy. We are all called to be servants. There are some in our church that are gifted specifically according to the measure of grace that God has decided to give the church and that individual to serve in a supernatural way. It's a way of life. Their service is energized by the Holy Spirit and they get tremendous joy from that. So we have the broad sense of the word diakonos in which we all find ourselves and we have a more specific group in the body that is specifically gifted in that area. And then we have the deacons. And what we will see in the qualifications laid out for them is that all qualities that they should have, we all should have in the church. The deacons, however, are to be exemplary models. They are, be to, they are to be the model of servant leadership in the church. So in one sense, we're all servants with a lowercase s, and the deacons would be servants with a capital S, officially in the church, servant leaders. And I'm going to use that term interchangeably going forward. Deacons, servant leaders, because literally that's what that word means. They are going to be the leaders of the servants in the church. We will also see that the deacons are not less holy than elders. 
or pastors or overseers. We don't place people in the role of deacon because they don't have their lives together enough to be an elder. That's not how it goes. And we don't view the role of deacon or servant leader as a stepping stone. Like it's not like you're going to work through the ranks. That's not what it is. I would hope that after our three three weeks in looking at the biblical uh, teaching on elders, that you would recall that there's two gifts that God gives to the elder that He does not give to the deacon. The two differentiating gifts is one they would they have the desire to serve in that role. And two, that they are able to teach. Now, does that mean that the deacon shouldn't teach? No. The deacon may teach. And may teach very well. And it would be encouraged in some cases for the deacon to teach. But that's not the primary role that the deacon plays in the church. When we look at the role of pastor and deacon, the pastor's overall responsibility is leading, through, leading the church through the authority of their understanding of the word and declaration. That's Blake's primary role. That is what he should be spending his time doing. That's why when you see a church gathering like this, and we look at the number of people who have committed to being a part of our church body, we need to get deacons in place. It's, it's a necessity. We need to have Blake spending his time where he is primarily gifted as a pastor and then have others who are called to be servant leaders for our church body. The deacon is no less godly in character or spirituality but functions as one who implements the teaching of the pastor taking the teaching of the pastor and putting it into action. Who leads the ministry of service in the church and serves in a way in a, that is a model of Christ-like love, compassion, and self-sacrifice. So this morning we search the scriptures for the qualifications of the servant leader, the deacon. We'll get through half of that in our, in our time together this morning and Blake will finish it up next week. So we continue in 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to focus specifically this morning on verses 8 through 10. And as we study our text this morning, we'll see four sections of qualifications. The first, we'll see the deacon's character in verse 8. Second, we will examine the deacon's spirituality in verse 9. In the first half of verse 10, we'll look at the deacon's service. And then lastly, at the second half of verse 10... We'll look at the servant leader's irreproachability, and I know that's a long word. I thought about it as I was going through my sermon this morning, so I'll define that for you. But irreproachability. Father, I pray as we go into this time of study that you would teach us by your Spirit, that you would sanctify your church in your truth. Help me speak clearly and give us the ability to understand your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The first point in our outline this morning is we're going to look at the deacon's character. Paul introduces a new section of leadership here that is to be examined when he uses the word likewise. He starts off with elders, and as he moves down, he's saying, okay, first we have the qualifications for elders. Now let me introduce a new group to you. Likewise, deacons. And he's saying that the deacon's character and spirituality is to be like that of the elder. Likewise. There's no diminishing factor. And then again, he introduces the necessity of the qualifications with the word must. Deacons must. And then he states that the person being considered for this role must qualify for the position in the church prior to actually becoming a deacon. He does not say deacons must become. He says deacons must be. This is how they are to be right now. When we are appointing people to serve in this role, we're not saying, oh, I see potential in this person. Let them serve in this role and let's see what happens. That's not what's being said here. The deacon must be this already. He says the deacon must be dignified. This qualification could also be interpreted as serious, grave, or stately. It has the idea that the person in the role of servant leader must be serious in mind and in character. The deacon must have a stateliness about them that garners respect and admiration from others. This fly is back. Gosh. It could be the Holy Spirit. I don't know. This would be someone who has integrity and recognizes the serious nature of spiritual leadership. The person would not be insensitive to the seriousness of spiritual issues. Not living a trivial way of life, but a person of dignity and one who recognizes, understands, and appreciates the seriousness of life. The deacon must be dignified, very similar to the elder's requirement to be respectable. When we look to the the servant leader, we admire their character. We see them as dignified people. Now, what does dignified mean? It does not mean that they dress nice, that they live a fancy lifestyle. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm thinking of somebody who, they're clean, clean cut, dress appropriately, show everything externally that they are people of dignity and that's a misconception it's about what's inside of that person do you look to the character of that person and do you see traits that are worth following that are worth admiration they must be respectable they must be dignified and then after one positive statement regarding what the deacon must be He gives us three negative statements and what they should not be. The deacon or the servant leader must not be double-tongued. One of the ways I've heard this interpreted is that you don't want somebody to be a deacon that would be a gossiper. Someone who talks 
so fast, so much, without thinking that they are actually speaking with two tongues. And I would agree that we don't want that. Because what we're going to see is that the role of deacon, they're going to be entrusted with some personal information for those inside the church and those outside the church. And we don't want somebody in that role of servant leader to be sharing that with people, to be speaking first without thinking. I would agree with all of that. However, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Well, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Right, right thought, wrong text. When Paul writes that the deacon is not to be double-tongued, I believe he is referring to the integrity of speech. This is saying, you don't, the deacon will not be somebody who says one thing to one person and something completely different to somebody else in order to gain favor in their eyes. I've seen this in the workplace. That's the example I think of. Somebody who does not display this character. I had a co-worker years ago I was trying to help. And I went to this person. She was new in my department. And I said, hey, how can I help you transition? Hey, do you understand exactly what we're trying to do with this project or with this job duty? And the response was, yeah, I got it. I got it. I understand. I understand. Okay, good. Supervisor comes in. And what she didn't know is that the supervisor had actually told me, hey, I need you to make sure she knows what she's doing. I need you to make sure she's comfortable. So this is coming. I'm, I'm following my boss's orders. Supervisor comes in, and he asked her the same question. Hey, do you know what you're doing? And she says, not really. I have a lot of questions for you. She said one thing to me. And I don't know if it was trying to make, make me feel, hey, I don't need your help. Hey, I know what I'm doing. Hey, I, I deserve this job, like that kind of a thing. But then when my boss comes in and says something completely different, because she does not want him to hold her accountable for the fact that she doesn't know anything. She doesn't know what she's supposed to be doing. Double-tongued. One thing to one person, one thing to somebody else. The deacon, the servant leader, should speak truthfully have integrity in their speech, be honest, consistent. The servant leader must not be addicted to much wine. As we saw with the requirement for the elder or the pastor, the same is required for the servant leader. The servant leader must be self-controlled just as the elder must be self-controlled. The servant leader must always be sober-minded just as the elder or pastor must always be sober-minded just as all Christians must always be sober-minded. We have committed our lives to serving the Lord, to accomplishing the mission that has been laid out for us. There are no days off. There are no vacations from this life. Our rest will come one day when we are in the presence of our Lord and Savior. But until then, we are working to accomplish His mission for us. And so we must always be ready. Even more so, the role of leader in the church must always be sober-minded. The one who is addicted to wine or drunkard is not always in control of their faculties. And that person is not qualified to lead the servants in the church. 
So the, the servant leader must be dignified. The servant leader must not be double-tongued. The servant leader must not be addicted to much wine. And the servant leader must not be greedy for dishonest gain. This requirement is in regards to money. In the days when Paul wrote this, the deacon's primary role at that time was going out with the funds from the church to care for the widows, to care for the orphans, to meet the needs of those who had them, to care for the sick. Well, obviously, you don't want somebody who is greedy for dishonest gain serving in that role. I immediately think of Judas. As the disciples were following Jesus around, Judas had the purse. And he was greedy for dishonest gain. And it ended in his ruin. As a church, we must be careful to examine our servant leaders in this area. Scripture tells us that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And it would be to our detriment, as well as those that we care for, to place an individual who is greedy for dishonest gain in this role. The servant leaders are the ones who implement the teaching of the pastor. And there are times when that implementation is going to require some of the church's funds. We must not allow someone who loves money to have access to those resources. Here, Paul gives qualifications for the character of an an, an individual. The character of one who would fill this position of servant leader. Dignified. Integrity of speech, not double-tongued. Self-controlled and sober-minded, not addicted to alcohol. Not a lover of money. Not greedy for dishonest gain. But it isn't just the character that God is concerned with when it comes to filling this role in the church. He also cares about their spiritual life. In verse 9, we see the second point of our outline. We want to examine the deacon's spirituality. Paul says they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, for those of you who are with us, when we studied Ephesians, you're familiar with Ephesians 3 when we talk about the mystery. Paul uses that term a lot. And if you recall, the mystery as defined by Paul in Ephesians 3 was something that was hidden, that was not revealed. Specifically, we're talking about the gospel here. And not just the gospel for the Jews. Not the good news for them and their coming Messiah. But the part that was hidden that was not revealed was that it is also for the Gentiles. And Paul knows this. Paul is a minister of the gospel to the Jews first and also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. If you remember, Blake Blake had a great illustration. I'll probably always remember this, Blake. He talked about, not just because I was part of the example, but he, he kind of showed us what the temple would have looked like. And you had God's presence in the Holy of Holies. And depending on your identity and your race, where you come from, that determined how close you could get. So you have God's presence in the Holy of Holies. The high priest could go in once a year. But then you have men, women, and then you have Jewish men, Jewish women, and then you have the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles. And what Paul said in the Ephesians was, this is the gospel, the one that the, the mystery of the faith is that those who were once far off have now been brought near. 
that we as Gentiles are no longer out in the outer courts, but that through Jesus Christ we have been brought near. And that was a mystery. It was hidden and then revealed in God's divinely appointed time. So Paul here says that the servant leader must hold, must keep, must believe that truth. But he doesn't just stop at the level of belief. He says he must believe with a clear conscience. After all, this role is for the example of the whole church. And this statement with a clear conscience is really the key to this qualification. Can this individual believe the gospel with a clear conscience? A conscience that does not bring accusation or guilt on them. Does the life of the deacon support the belief in the gospel? Do they live out their spiritual convictions? This is not to say that the servant leader is perfect and without sin. But when sin is in their life, are they confessing to their father? Are they confessing to their brothers and sisters so that they may receive healing from that? Because if they're doing that, then they can stand boldly as a leader for the servants in the church, holding this truth with a clear conscience. We must examine the spirituality of the servant leaders. We also must examine their service. Paul said, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. The church is to test the deacon first to examine their service. Now, what does this look like? Traditionally, I've experienced experienced it like this. There are a group of people presented to the church. Like, hey, we want you to consider these people, these individuals, as deacons. And sometimes it's like a specific period of time. Hey, you need to make your decision in the next three months. You're going to watch them. Watch everything they do, and then we'll make the decision whether or not to appoint them as deacons in the church. And unfortunately, as we've already discussed, there wasn't a high standard that they had to meet. I mean, as long as they didn't drink, they didn't cuss, they didn't dip, they didn't smoke in public, they could qualify as a deacon. As long as they came to church on Sunday mornings, they brought their families and... They didn't take money from the offering plate. They could be a deacon in the church. Now, that's not the case for all of us. And I rejoice if that's true. But it's also not the case for all of us, all of the individuals who are deacons in our church. I have been raised in the faith by some godly men and women in, in my home church where I grew up. And I rejoice and I praise God that there were some like that, but the standard was not there. So what does it look like to test them first? I think this qualification of service calls for far more than just a three-month examination. I think we're to test these individuals against the qualifications we've already seen and also to look at their track record of service in the church. Do they love the church in the way that they serve? Do they take the teaching from the pastor and implement it in their own lives? If not, how can we expect them to implement it for the church? 
Honestly, what we should see as a way of testing the deacon is that they are already serving in the church. Their serving should not be based on an announced time of examination. That should already be happening. So we need to examine the service of these individuals. And before we move on, I want to make sure we understand that that examination is not a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This isn't like you pass the exam and you're in for life. This is a constant testing. And it's the same you should do for your pastors. I think Blake's going to mention this in the coming weeks, but if you have a pastor or an elder who is in sin, unrepentant, then you rebuke them in front of the whole body so that the whole body sees that and understands if they're going to do it to the elder, surely they're going to do it to me. Surely the church would hold me accountable as well. This examination is to be ongoing. And if over time the servant leader that has been appointed proves themselves to be disqualified, then they should be removed from that role. Lastly, these servants should be found blameless, above reproach. That's what irreproachability means, above reproach. We've seen that in the, in the qualifications for the, the pastor, the overseer, the elder. He says, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if conditioned upon them proving themselves blameless. This again re-emphasizes the fact that the qualifications for the deacons in relation to the elders is not less. It is the same standard. They're equal. The deacon is to prove themselves blameless as a condition upon appointment to this position. They're to be found morally pure without any grounds for disqualification. look at the qualifications God has demanded for the servant leaders in his church, we see that we are to look for individuals of Christ-like character, with devout spiritual lives, who display a commitment of service to the Lord and his people, and are found to be above reproach. Church, this is the standard God has demanded for those who will be deacons. The servant leaders. This is what we should be looking for. This position is a high calling and is as important as the position of pastor. We need to appoint those that we see as exemplary models of service that we see as leaders who will lead us in service faithfully to our Lord. Those who will take the teaching and the direction of the pastors and implement it. And you've been asked to examine Troy. And I'll tell you to examine him like I told you to examine me last week. Do you see him as one who possesses these attributes? If so, then I would say prayerfully entrust him with the responsibilities of this role. If not, do not let him serve in this role. I would also also ask you to consider others as well. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he was directing him to appoint elders, plural, and deacons, plural. We're in a unique setting here. Blake is bivocational. 
If I get appointed elder, I also am bivocational. I was, that, by the way, I don't, to clear that, that means we have jobs outside of the church. He's at Westlake Chemical. I'm at First National Bank DeRitter. We have full-time jobs outside of the service that we give to the church. I was having lunch this week with, with someone in our body, and that was one of the things that came up in conversation was the concern over the fact that as we grow, what's going to happen? Because we're so used to seeing the full-time pastor. We're used to seeing someone on staff. And there's concern now. Because now that we're here, if we continue to grow, what's that going to look like? We don't know. We don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, in an ideal, ideal world, our church would be filled with so much servant leadership and so much, so much of the heart of servants that it may not be necessary for one to be on full, full, full paid staff. That's possible. One of the things I communicated to that person is we don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, if you've talked to Blake, you kind of know his heart and you know what he said in the past. But he hasn't written it off. You know, he enjoys being bivocational. He enjoys the fact that he is in the workplace. He gets to disciple people in the workplace. He gets to show Jesus Christ to his co-workers. But he's not going to write off something. We need deacons in the church because, especially right now, there's only so much capacity. So consider others. You know, Troy's been presented, but I would ask you to look among you and consider, hey, who fits this role? Who do I see as dignified? Somebody that's respectable. Who do I see that's not addicted to wine, that is self-controlled, sober-minded, Who do I know in our church body that implements the teaching of the pastor in their lives? Somebody worth following. I would also ask you, I would also ask you to consider how you may serve. We've all been called to be servants. As we discussed this morning, we are all to follow in Christ's example. He came not to be served, but to serve. And if the whole goal of the Christian faith in this life is sanctification, becoming more and more holy, becoming more and more like Christ, well then, Christ served. So we should be serving. One thing that I love about our church, I was talking about this this morning. We're getting ready to to establish the budget for next year. I talked about it with my wife. I talked about it with Phil this morning. We have an item in our budget that's called, it's outreach. And within that, there's needs. And when I... I hesitate to say this, but because I've been a part of the body, I'm okay with saying it. What I love about this is that we haven't touched that this year. Now, some of you from the outside may say, oh, you're not helping people. No, no. 
We're not helping people through our budget. Instead, what we have are individuals in our church who are willing to raise up to the need that, we, that is out there. When we have homeless people and somebody says, hey, there's some homeless guys. We got people, hey, I've got chili being made. Hey, I'll go out there and bring it to them. Hey, they also need sleeping bags. They need a cell phone. Hey, I got that. I got that. I got that. That wasn't done through the church budget. That was individuals saying, hey, I give up my resources. I don't need this in order to help meet another need. I love that about our church. We had Operation Outerwear. We had an individual in our church who said, hey, this is an area where we can minister to our community. And our church came together and we, we looked in our closet and said, I don't wear that coat. I don't wear that jacket. And we brought it and now they're going to distribute it to people in our area. We've got green beans out on the table out here to help support care help as they minister to, to meet people's needs. That's good. That's a start. Because there are other needs that are going to call for more than our resources. And look, I, I'm preaching this to myself as well. Natalie and I have had some tough conversations in the past few weeks about how we handle the material things that we have and how sometimes we say we're, we're comfortable with letting someone in, but it's only a specific kind of person that can come into our home. If we're going to take someone in, I don't want to take somebody coming from an abusive relationship because I'm scared that the, I'm not naive to think that that person in the relationship that's the victim is not still in contact with the person that's abusing them. What if that person shows up to my home and my wife's there and I can't defend her? Or I've taken two homeless guys. They're homeless. It's great that we gave them a sleeping bag. But what if they needed a place to stay? A bed? I'm going to bring two homeless guys in. I don't know anything about to live in a house with my wife. Some of you have kids. I don't have kids yet, but that would add to the dilemma. If we trust that God has allowed us to minister and he's given us these things to minister, why do we hold them back? And sometimes it's more than material things. Sometimes people need our time. They need our presence. Sometimes we have to get a little bit dirty in order to meet the needs of others. We've all been called to be servants. We have to ask ourselves, how are we filling that role? I mean, you've been taught about how to examine Troy as the official position of servant leader, but how are we as individuals filling our calling as servants? So be on the lookout. Think. Pray. How can I get involved in the upcoming ministry opportunities? Be on the lookout for ways that you can minister to people in our community to help the church fulfill its mission of making disciples, of mobilizing the gospel, and magnifying Christ. I also ask you to pray for the leaders in our church. It is a big job with a lot of responsibility, and the enemy will we'll seek to infiltrate the lives of those who have the most influence over the church. 
pray that our leaders will continue to maintain the joy of serving the body and pursue righteousness and holiness as examples for all of us. Father, we come to you this morning so grateful for your word.